You are listening to the Think Brick Australia podcast. Think Brick Australia represents the clay, brick and paver manufacturers of Australia. Brick by Brick, our podcast will discuss technical information and architectural case studies with special guests. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of Think Brick Australia. On today's podcast, it's really exciting because as I was just mentioning to Jeff, this is the first time I think I've seen anyone from Western Australia in nearly over 18 months here in person. Mm. So thank you for coming, Jeff. Jeff is a co-founder from With Architecture and recently just completed the appointment of the government architect for Western Australia. But Jeff, before we get into your background and experience. I wondered whether you could just talk to us a little bit about your upbringing and and sort of what led you to architecture. Being my age, that's a long story, but I'll see if I I can cut it a bit shorter. I'm from Western Australia. I was born and bred there and my parents were and most of my grandparents were, so that's relatively rare in WA. I studied architecture at Curtin University, which used to be called the West Australian Institute of Technology. Prior to that, it was a Perth Technical College that was in the centre of the city. So the generation or two of architects before me all went to Perth College or to the University of Western Australia, which had an architecture school. Curtin was one of those late 1960s universities that were established in the suburbs, presumably to educate Australians and in a more holistic and larger numbers. So it was very much a kind of suburban university. And I am from the suburbs in Perth, so that's my kind of background. There is no architect or artist in our family, so it was of my generation, one of the first people in the family or broader family to go to university. What made you choose architecture if that Um, wasn't something that was... Yeah, I do recall in high school going to a careers advisor or whatever the term was in those (laughs) days and mentioning I could like to be an architect. I don't know why, probably didn't really understand what one was. (laughs) I was advised to take up carpentry, given my school results or attitude at school. Oh, wow. (laughs) But that was in high school. So years later, when I decided to go to university, and that was the result of the Whitland government, and it was a big rush for my generation to go to university and hopefully not go to war and all that kind of stuff. It was probably more of a choice of what I didn't want to do. My father was very keen for me to do law or medicine. He was a racehorse trainer so he was trying to get me to go to vet school but there wasn't one in (laughs) WA at the time and it was probably by saying I don't want to do this want to do that and I remember going out to Curtin University and seeing the architecture school building and go well that looks interesting why don't I do architecture (laughs) that's how it started and I can't say I was particularly enamored to the course I found it terribly boring and I was kind of more interested in doing other things at that age and I do recall the changing point was a tutor who had recently arrived from London and he was very cool and he looked like he was straight out of the Pink Floyd velvet (laughs) pants and long hair and he showed a slideshow that had and literally there were slides in those days images of things I'd just never seen artworks by Klaus Oldenburg and work by Archie Graham and a whole range of stuff and the Eames and I was just hooked and I went straight up to him and said how can I do some of that and he said come to my house on the weekend and I'll talk about it which I guess you can't do that sorts of things these days but it was perfectly fine and he's still a really close friend of mine. And so had he um, moved to Perth? Yeah, he was married to a Perth woman and they were living in London. He's, he's an Englishman 
And she was a very good graphic designer. And Bill, Bill Busfield, his name was, Bill was studying at the AA and that was going through a tremendous period around the Archie Graham era and days of people like Norman Foster, I think, studied there. But his wife was a graphic designer. So when we went to their house, so it was just full of felt pens and coloured drawings and lots of books on graphics and I was... I was just stunned. And they became good friends. And as I say, Bill is still a very close friend of mine and I see him regularly. And he became, for West Australia, a great mentor for many very good architects around Australia. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing what one person can do. And there was one other tutor there, Duncan Richards, who is, lives in Sydney, has done for a number of years. I think may originally come from here, but a consummate academic and a kind of brain that I had never come across, kind of the capacity to think things differently and see the world in a very different way. And in that period, Curtin University was a really cool, interesting university, very accessible. And so I, in a way, didn't do a lot of the technical subjects and went and enrolled in social science and art courses. That cross-disciplinary thing that is talked about so often now was was just normal and certainly was for me. So I was able to go around and meet a whole lot of different lecturers in different departments within the university, which exposed me to a whole range of different things. One, for example, is a guy from California who had a whole lot of literature that which was banned in Australia. It was pretty tame. Now, but at the Oz magazine and It magazine which <laughs> came out of Europe and USA, underground magazines. He was a social cultural scientist and I got on with him very well. He introduced me to a lot of West Coast music and all that kind of stuff. And so I had a great time at university, but kind of doing things on the side, not the central course. And so were there any architects during that time that you were introduced to that left an impression or was it more mm. a lot of artists, so to speak? It's mostly sort of the art and the cultural world. And I had a friend who was studying theatre arts and that became really interesting and I got involved in that. But I would probably say that Bill Busfield had a small office and I used to work for him when I was a student and I got introduced to a lot of things, kind of English architecture through him. But probably the more well-known architect would be Ivan Ivanov. Yes. And a very good friend of mine from high school was a draftsman for Ivan. And so I would go around and visit him. Saturday mornings, we used to work Saturday mornings in those days and <laughs> sometimes in the week if I didn't have some university obligations. And so I got to know Ivan Ivanov quite well and he only had a two-person practice at that time and two or three, he was always quite small, but personally involved. So mm. I got to know him well and went to his office many times and a number of conversations with him and I also went to a number of houses and one of our subjects was a kind of building-orientated subject at university and you needed to keep a logbook of a building under construction. So my choice was one of Ivan's projects, which many years later I won a job to actually restore it, which is <laughs> a total coincidence. Ivan's um, been such an influence in Western Australia. We we saw yeah. it even in the awards entries. Yeah. yeah, he's revered, I suppose, because he's an eccentric that managed to survive in WA. We tend to not get rid of them, but he survived and did very well. But in many respects, he was a bit of an outcast in the mm. profession, uh, and he pursued a very singular approach to architecture that was clearly very influenced by European modernism. But also, Frank Lloyd Wright was a very keen he was very keen on frank lloyd wright's work and so blended those two things together or two styles together approaches but also a consummate craftsman so mm. he worked with a few timber contractors and carpenters 
bricklayers, block layers, of course, concrete block mostly. But also he would design a lot of timber work and, and joinery within the building. So mm. he had a lot of screens and a lot of very elaborate doors and built-in cabinet work, which he would detail and they'd make prototypes. And many years later, another weird coincidence, I was doing as a sole practitioner some interior design work for commercial fit-outs addressing salons and those kinds of small jobs. And one of the contractors who won the job turned out to be the person who made Ivan's doors and carpentry and cabinet work, etc. Wow. That he became my consistent go-to for interior fit-out work and yeah. that kind. So, of course, he told me a lot of stories and showed me some of the old patterns and timber cutout profiles that he and Ivan used to develop, etc. Mm. So a series of co- coincidences, I think, landed me in this profession and kept me there. <laughs> and and just tell us, you, you finish university and then what happens? I worked for a short period on a building site for a house that Bill Busfield was designing that was very unusual. It was up in the hills in Perth and it was still framed. It was like a spaceship and the panels he was innovating, the panels were being made in a factory and they were sandwiched foam panels and nothing had been constructed like that in WA. So he was sort of subcontracting it and I was labouring on that. So <laughs> that was really interesting. Then that was over the summer. Then I went straight to London and um, there was a recession on in London. So it was really hard to get work. So I remember spending some time in an office near the Strand, British Petroleum, BP, colouring in maps with a coloured pencil for the North Shelf, North Sea Shelf. <sighs> and I would just sit and colour, colour in all day, literally great big Maps as big as this table, literally. Are you getting paid for that? You have to colour the different layers of depths. I met a few other pencil colourers as well <laughs> who introduced me to London life. That was kind of good. So, And then I eventually picked up a job in a practice called Pearson. And his father was a very prominent practitioner of English hospital or health architecture and was a real pioneer, mostly out of London, but big, big hospitals in a kind of really brutalist, modernist style. Okay. His son, had, who was quite a mature gentleman then, was you know true English gentleman, cravat, moustache, cigars, <laughs> port at lunchtime, all that kind of stuff. He had a small office and because he was the president of the AA, the office had about six people all who were in the AA, all students, and one of them was a tutor and her name was Christine Hawley and she was sitting right next to me and I got to know Christine really well. And she would take me up to the AA like every lunchtime and introduce me to different people. And so I met all the kind of superstars of the AA at the time and would sit in at lunchtime lectures by people like Charles Jenks and, and then the bar at night, etc. And one of her best friends, and at the time they were doing a lot of projects together, was Peter Cook. And so he would come into the studio and have one of his drawings and he and Christine would be discussing it and they'd be drawing over it and penciling it. And I would sit right between the two of them while they had a crit about some competition entry they'd be doing in Onslow or some new book they were publishing or something. So I got this incredible, again, by complete coincidence, kind of landed. And then that big job finished. We were working on a big hospital in the Middle East and I thought I'd look around and I went to Farrell Grimshaw's office. That was Terry Farrell and Nick Grimshaw had a practice together and the prominent architects in London were Farrell Grimshaw, Norman Foster, Richard Rogers and Jim Sterling. And they're all relatively close to you and they all used to drink at the similar bar or two next door to our studio office. And so when I went for the interview, I 
I didn't get the job and I thought, oh, this, that was like a dream office. I'd walked into a place that was like amazing and all this kind of very cool Charles Eames furniture and not slick, it was, it was stylish, but it just looked like a laboratory of experimentation. It looked fantastic drawings on the wall and models and I didn't get the job and I felt really bad about it. And then about a week and a half later, I got a call from Nick Grimshaw saying, could you come in again and have a, another interview? We liked a few of your things. And they turned out to be a couple of the projects that I'd been working on with Bill. Oh, wow. I really liked them. And, of course, that was that circle closed. And I got a job there for a few years and absolutely loved it. And, of course, that introduced me to the whole beginnings of the high-tech architecture movement. And it's, it still stays with me, that kind of passion of being clear and working to tight tolerances and all those sorts of things. So that wasn't a brick world. It was the opposite. It was all about prefabrication and mm. assembly on sites and things of that kind. And then that practice split into two and I finished a job with Nick and then Kerry asked me to complete a couple of jobs he was working on. So they were sharing the staff to finish the works they had before they left. And Nick went to another location. Kerry stayed in that office and did a big fit out, which I worked on and it was widely published. And then Charles Jenks asked Terry to participate in the first Venice Biennale in 1980 and Terry was invited to put in three projects and each one of them I had worked on I went to Venice <laughs> and saw Frank Geary before anyone knew who Frank Geary was and all those that era of architects they all had small little pavilions or in, in the in the spaces within the building and lots of architects and they were lined up along the strata somewhere and obviously got the catalogue and signed and so that was another opening up of things. How long did you stay there all up, do you think? A few years. Five three, years or no, something? about three. And then I went to the United States and I had I landed in New York and I had $90 and they said, what are you going to do? With Australian us? dollars? <laughs> yeah. It was actually, it was, yeah, it was Australian dollars. It was, American dollar was 75 cents of an Australian dollar. I picked up a car to drive it to California. Petrol was 47 American cents, which is probably about 32 Australian cents. A gallon. <laughs> so I picked up this whopping great car and drank petrol. Yes. <laughs> and I drove across the United States and slept in the car and ended up in San Francisco. And that was an amazing awakening <laughs> to a whole another world. And then I ended up in Los Angeles. And in amongst, uh, all amongst that, I had travelled around Europe a bit. I had a car and I drove around Europe. And I ended up meeting some American students with a tutor, just standing on the side of the road, pouring with rain. And uh, they were standing, and so I pulled the car up. It was a van, a combi van. And I um, said, you, you people want to lift? And they were heading to Ronchamp, because I was in France. And they were side of the road, the little train station in the town, uh, only was operational every second or third day, so they were stranded. I said, well, I'll, I'll go and have a look at that building for sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we went and spent a day looking at one Trump, sitting in the coffee shop and pouring with rain and then go up and come back again and we're all alone. That was really an amazing time to just spend in an iconic building all by ourselves and then talking with these Californian architects, students and their tutor who came from SIARC. So I ended up being a good friend of Michael Rotondi's and, and Tom Main. And so I was introduced again. So I went and worked at SIARC for a short period of time and they didn't pay me and I slept on their floor and it was 50-50. So it was perfect. I could stay in the studio, work at night, go around, look at things in the day, work in the day and look at things at night. Wow. 
and another coincidence. I'm still in contact with Tom May. Now. And was your intention when you went to the States to work there or just no, to see no, it? No, just to see. I yeah. mean, America was very, not, it's not popular now, but in my generation it was a very, there was a lot happening in the American mm. cultural scene and the film scene and so it was just, the, not many Australians went to, well, certainly that I knew of, went to the United States or went to England like I did. But I did have that interest in surfing and all that kind of West Coast thing. But I loved New York and it was, like that film Taxi Driver, exactly like that. Yes. I stepped in the street and within five minutes I was looking at someone who was on the ground with blood coming out of him and just being shot <laughs> and cops everywhere. So I thought, wow, this place is great. I'm <laughs> taking it here. It's just, I always think it's just like the movies, like, yeah, you know. It's crazy. It's What's your favourite building there in New York? Oh, there's so many. I just love the city. The energy of yeah. the city is just phenomenal. And I love the avenues. High school friends been there for 20 or something years. And a few times I've visited him and walk up the avenues. They're all different. They are. So good, you know, it's so interesting. But it is the energy you can't, yeah, it's hard to describe, but it, yeah. nothing beats it. There's a kind of atmosphere mm. in, the, in the place that's just a buzz. So you could get a list a whole lot of buildings, uh, but it's it's a combination of that and the planning and just the, the spirit of the people and, and the kind of generosity which really surprised me because, you know, I'd stand and open up a map in those days and within two seconds I'm like, oh, I'll help you with which way you want to go and welcome to New York. And often people would take me out to dinner and just to see someone unusual. Then I came back to Australia and... Um, so, so how long were you in the States for? Oh, we were only allowed to be in the States six months. Oh, okay. Yeah, there was a, a limited visa, so I yes. stayed right to the last day mm-hmm. and travelled all around, got that car and went through the down south and through the desert and up the Blue Mountains, which was absolutely stunning, and then up to the east coast. So I stopped at most a lot of the big cities and you know, for a day or so, Philadelphia. But spent a lot of time out in the... Landscape, it's mm-hmm. stunning, absolutely stunning. Great Lakes, Chicago, of course. But yeah, San Francisco was really good, and Los Angeles and New York. I kind of love those kind of cities. So mm-hmm. very, very different and very, very lively. A lot of alternative stuff going on as well. So that was intriguing from someone from a country town, Perth, <laughs> to hit the kind of hippie scene in San Francisco. And just out of curiosity, how did you get back? Did you have to go through Sydney or no flights? I went back to London and then came back oh, to okay. Australia. But yep. flights in those days used to stop in the Middle East. Yes. And fuel and then Singapore. Right. So you'd end up with a couple of stops and that was a pretty common. So the first stop leaving Perth was Singapore, which in those days was a real third world country. Shacks and shanty towns and things. Yep. Amazing. So, yeah, a lot of coincidences just fell in place and... During all that travelling, I, I visited hundreds and hundreds of buildings. I even went to East Germany. I, I actually took me about a year to get a pass because the Berlin Wall was up then and East Germany was Yes. Up. But I applied to the embassies and it took me about a year to get approval to drive into East Germany and drive through it. So I drove to Berlin and then you had to go into the west through the wall and then when I was in Berlin, I could drive through. It wasn't Czechbelt, Charlie. It was a little, a, another one, but very close. And then I drove into East Berlin and wow, it was a real eye-opener and I was able to stay four days, I think it was, and I had to check into the police station every day and I was only allowed to stay in campgrounds because I had a vehicle but not with the Germans, so I had to stay over to the site and so I did have some secret rendezvous in the toilet blocks and things with a few East Germans wanting to buy my jeans and <laughs> it was sad, it was so sad. Yes. And when you came back, I mean, how did that travel inform your career after that? Did it, did it, 
what sort of impact did it leave? I, on? I think tremendous. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm a very local person. I've always practiced in Perth, and but it's always that international influence that's always been this thing of kind of matching local conditions with what's happening mm. internationally, which I think drew me to education. And I did a lot of teaching with my friend Bill, and we did that for fifteen odd years. And and it was always this: how do you bring other influences? into the, the West Australian scene. It was very parochial and kind of closed shop and we were quite different in the kind of teaching practices. Bill and I spent a lot of effort bringing international people to West Australia to talk. Yeah. So that was part of the influence that you're talking about. So meeting people from small schools like Sayak, which was a private school, and the AA was a private school there. We met young architects who either had small practices and were doing a bit of part-time work or were published and reasonably prominent in their own town. So inviting them to West Australia was like the, often really excited. Yes. And, but we would have to go and raise money. And I remember the most we could get was $50 off the Institute and $50 off the university. Wow. <laughs> so we would do all sorts of ways we could think of to fundraise and a few hotels would give us a reduction and stuff like that but we had to pay for quite a bit of ourselves and we tried some entry tickets for the but that was like five dollars <laughs> <laughs> so you know people weren't that interested or threatened by the outside world yes but we did that a, a number of times and built quite an exciting scene in perth mm. and as a result of that we had some fantastic energy in the students student cohort or well, group of students and some who just left and stayed close to that scene. And some of them are very prominent architects in Sydney, in Melbourne, and other parts of the world. And we're still in contact, and I'm going to see one of them tomorrow. And lifelong friendships out of that. Just We'd have shows of an evening at hotels, pubs. The Wolf Pre came, invited Wolf Pre. Wolf Pre wasn't known, but he had a crazy little house in Los Angeles and we invited him to Perth and he took up the invite. I must have taken a month to get there. <laughs> and uh, we asked the students to make a model of his house and he walked in the studio and saw it and he almost started crying, you know. Oh. He, was, he was so stunned that he'd come up three-quarters away around the world and his project was there. And Peter Cook and Christine and Peter Salter and Stuart Cohen, all these people came to. And then we took the university into running a like a four-week or a month kind of residency. And a couple came and stayed for a month or so. And that had tremendous influence. Architecture was very graphic in those days in the sense that there were no computers, so that was all hand drawing. And mm. some of these people were stunning illustrators. And so they'd sit with the students and they'd draw and they'd show them how they because everything we received was always published. Mm. And uh, like in a magazine, that's probably as big as an envelope would be the biggest image you would see in a magazine. So we would got to roll out drawings that were twice as big as A1 or huge drawings and they'd scratch away and paint away and stuff. It was just so eye-opening to see the r real thing where most of it was in a, just in a glossy magazine. So that created a lot of enthusiasm for cohort or group of architects that were really in the physical side of making models and making drawings and we'd exhibit them and debate them. Great initiative. And you did spend a while with the students. Did you notice anything over the years? Did, do students change? Well, students always change and <laughs> you would assume that's never going to end. No. <laughs> There's obviously cultural change and I think we're getting, what's the next generation? An alpha generation? Yeah. App generation, so grown up with apps. Putting that aside though, the kind of, energy and enthusiasm that of the period I was just referring to 
And Curtin University got quite a reputation. A number of students started to win competitions and things of that kind. So it started to get a national reputation. That energy I've only ever seen of an equivalence, and probably much greater, in the RMIT era of Leon Van Schaik. And Leon invited me over to do a master's and I went through all that kind of experience again and mm-hmm. met you know, some very significant Australian architects, particularly the Melbourne groups, but not entirely, through that program. So the ARM guys, Ian McDougall and John Wardle and Peter Elliott. And so then a whole other world opened up for me and then I got invited quite a lot to lecture and participate and then the same in Sydney and Tone Wheeler yes. uh, was teaching at Sydney. Mm-hmm. He invited me up there to give a couple of lectures and show our work. And most of our work was very small, but it was, I think, done with an attitude and an intensity, not manic, but a kind of penetrating desire to think about what we're doing and try to learn how to discuss it. Architects appreciate that, Alexands and people mm-hmm. like that. So I kind of met those sorts of people. But that really was through the RMIT program. And yeah. that was stunning. It was stunning that. that was just the whole thing was grander and Leon would have fly over on Friday afternoon and leave on Monday morning or Sunday night. And so a whole weekend of talking with philosophers and architects from overseas and other people running the programming, having your work crit by international superstars. And it was amazing. I don't see the appetite for that level of engagement. I'm not so directly attached to the academy, so it may exist, but I do follow. But that program was truly inspiring and I think it was emulated by other universities around the world Mm. so that was what Leon really did I think was translate the AA model to Melbourne because I think he actually applied for the head of the AA school after Alvin Biaski died and obviously he was successful so he went took up the role in Melbourne I think that's the case it may not be true but he took up the um, job in Melbourne and RIT was a really crummy school stunning I, I went across once and before Leon had really expanded his program, I was invited to cross and that was through my academic work and we exhibited some work in Melbourne and had a bit of, it was appalling and the interior design was shocking, you know, bits of fabric stuck to cardboard. <laughs> and Leon invited another guy from the AA, uh, Sean Andrews, who was crazy and Melbourne was far too small for John, but he really changed the interior design course to be much more exploratory and have a lot of parties. <laughs> but the energy around that school was stunning. Yes. But I think now there are just too many things for people to do, young people. Yes. That they find it very hard to, in busy lives and very demanding lives, to spend hundreds and hundreds of hours a week, if there are that many, in a, in a studio or in front of a drawing board or yeah. something. There's just too many things to do, even for me now. You know. <laughs> We were stuck to our computers and so much media and there. Mm. So I think those days are kind of gone, but mm. they probably come through other levels of enthusiasm. It's human nature that come through other channels. Yes. That's the thing I noticed the most. Okay. Yeah. And I think the courses have changed significantly. So, mm. I mean, we would have a minimum of two days of design. Now I don't even think there are many schools have studios anymore. No, no, we find here we have a fabulous intern program mainly for engineers, but one of the things we do as an association is go through like the 101 on brick because the first thing in terms of all the calls that we get is normally from a graduate architect or engineer that's been asked to design a brick wall and they don't know what a straight standard it is and obviously aside from Perth. But you do find on the East Coast that they're they're just trying to cram so much into the curriculum that some key... Elements of building have yeah. gone from it. 
Another thing that is really noticeable, when I enrolled in my first year, there was 104 students in first year and one female. Now I think the enrolments are generally more females than males and that's a big change mm. and a good change. And I think the, and I'm not sure there's a connection between this, I'm not suggesting there is, but that's a big change. And I think the introduction of software is so demanding, the learning curve on software is so demanding, that takes up a lot of time mm. most students tell me young people who, who we employ so it's not very well taught at the university it's it's brushed across yes so they're expected to learn out of hours so that yeah. might be the thing that chews up a lot of time but there's so many of them they're constantly changing so i think that's a really demanding and so the emphasis on construction and construction knowledge and even some of the fundamentals of understanding plans and sections and how buildings are put together there's so little emphasis of that in education now but I think the door's open for a, another group to come in and take over that field of architects yes. on how you put buildings together. Yep. And I think, I don't, I'm sure the Institute's aware of it, but mm-hmm. I think it's a real challenge for mm-hmm. the future is that gap between conceiving of a building, illustrating it, and then understanding the next step on how it comes together. Software's important. I know when we were talking with Camilla Block, she was also saying that Drawing is so important because as an architect, if you're on site, you know, you need to describe, you know, actually, I guess in instance, how a brick should be or how you could figure something out. And she said, you know, drawing's such an important part of being that median. Yeah. And because software has become more and more important, many people haven't been drawing as much. That was her observation. Yeah, there's also a, a kind of romantic dimension to the physical act of drawing that in a way is I think closely related to, or coming from the analogue world anyway, closely related to thinking. So drawing is much slower after you've learnt the skills and that takes you a few years in university days on how to use pens and pencils. You tend to, in a way, become automatic like handwriting. Mm. So you think about the project a lot. I, well, I watch the young people at work in my studio and it looks to me that they're constantly in a game with the software. Now, how do I get this to work? Or how do I get it? How do I reverse it? How do I flip it up the other way? Right. There's a constant dialogue with the software, not the project. Yes. I don't know if that's accurate because I'm not an avid user of Enscape or something. So uh, having been trained in the analog world, I do see a difference in the what's going, what I imagine is going on in, in the mind. You know? And I suppose that's that cliche that, or maybe it's not a cliche, but a phrase that comes around drawing that is a kind of mode of thinking and learning about the project by drawing it. Mm. And it would be a bit like, I think, in my early years, we did one of our courses was building construction. So we kind of learned a bit about how to lay bricks or we'd go and speak with bricklayers and they'd say this coursing is harder to lay than mm-hmm. this coursing and if the mortar's too thick it dries and it's too hard to handle and it's yep. got to be like butter and all those sorts of things. And you learn about those techniques. Mm. I guess that doesn't stop buildings being built. Architects don't know so much about that anymore. Someone does. I think, yeah, some <laughs> of those techniques are being learned a bit more on the job now. Yeah. And, Jeff, tell me, how did With Studio come about? When I came back from all that travelling, I was kind of a bit lonely. There was not nothing much happening in Perth. I couldn't see anyone that I was remotely interested in working with. Peter Parkinson was a Perth architect who was from the AA. He was a senior architect and was a theatre enthusiast. And I went and did a small job with him. He His practice had folded and he was right on the edge of retiring. He had a little 
office in Subiaco. So I rented a desk from him, drawing board, and I started my own practice. As I mentioned earlier, I was just doing small fit outs and house additions and things of that kind. And Peter was great to be in the room with. He would just have classical music all day and four o'clock on Fridays, we'd champagne would come out and we'd have these all-night parties and things and so it was a very social environment but he was a very good architect and um, so I learned a lot from him casually. I didn't really work for him but he would talk a lot about show me old drawings and he was a beautiful draftsman and had upgraded His Majesty's Theatre which was a you know, late 1800s theatre in Perth and did a stunning job and won the state gold medal. And so it was quite revered but quite eccentric. So that was kind of an interesting way for me not to leave Perth. I was kind of like, I can't stand this place. It's, nothing's happening. <laughs> but Peter was a kind of – and Bill was there, you know, so I got built, you know, and that's when I got involved in the teaching. You know, so yes. Helped me there. But I went and studied uh, literature at Murdoch University. So comparative literature and literature theory and stuff like that. And that was good. And I met a professor from London who was a semiotician and he was quite internationally known and had published a lot in international critical theory journals and things of that kind. And I got to know him very well and still know him very well. I went to his 80th birthday last year and we still keep in contact. And there was another German chap. And Tim Murdoch was a small stunningly good university that uh, they had up there only employ the best and it was only about six or eight people there it was a small course and with their interest and help I designed my own course so whilst I had to do a couple of the base units I was able to mix and match and so social science and semiotics and Italian and blah 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 and a whole bunch of things like that which added up to degree and I did a lot of the work at night and um, so I looked at Russian constructivist architecture and things of that from a critical and social point of view and read a lot of Russian novels and all that stuff and then tried to write about the architecture that might have been in the novels or influenced by the novels and then a lot of paintings and so I and so Michael O'Toole, who was the professor there, and I would do this over summer breaks and late at night and all that kind of stuff by correspondence and I would go down to the University with the key lectures. He set up a series of tours at State Art Gallery and he asked me to join him. And so he and I did these semiotic tours of paintings within the State Art Gallery. And so by then I was locked in to Perth. I had enough interesting things going on. You know. And a good friend from university, Dick Donaldson, we did our thesis together. It's the first time there'd ever been a joint thesis. Oh, I didn't want to design a fire station or a <laughs> petrol station or a block of flats. I refused to do it. Oh, I love so it. they said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, oh, I'll do something on surfing. <laughs> and they said, you can't. It's not a building. I said, yeah, but I'll work out something. A surf club. <laughs> I was not a surf club. <laughs> uh, what it turned out to be was a kind of urban design study. I yes. found an American architect who had published a study on a series of rivers up in the northeast. And they were landscape architects would do called landscape urbanism. Or something. Okay. It was just kind of big maps of walking and so I made a proposal and I convinced Dick to join me and um, we discussed it with our tutors and we would take all the coastal beaches in Perth and photograph them all and map them and try to work out why one was better than another or why certain people went to one beach and certain people went to another beach okay. in the suburbs and so we measured the car parks and counted them and we interviewed people on the beach and it turned into kind of like a social urban design study and I, no one had really in my knowledge was doing anything like that yeah. so after convincing people we'd actually put some serious work into it and it wasn't just you know, spending all that time surfing, they allowed us to do this. And it turned out really well and it was really well received and it was kind of, I'm still very interested in urban design and do a lot of that work in Western Australia mm-hmm. and I think that was the beginnings of that kind of analytical 
view of a physical environment. Mm. And then I think later on the, the literary studies and stuff added a capacity to describe things differently. You yeah. know, what's now called a narrative, you know, mm-hmm. give a project a narrative. Well, I was doing that a long time ago, but that came through a different channel. They're trying to describe projects in a kind of more literary way and look for kind of nuances that are related to the way people use and appreciate and respond to place and space and form and zeitgeist and those things as opposed to just the physical environment. So we could measure and photograph the physical environment and then we'd speculate on the emotive side and that came through interviews and recordings and we did a great big tape recorder and blowing in the wind. In those days it was kind of very different. We didn't have the easy technologies but that was what I was kind of doing at that time and then there wasn't a lot of work around and I decided to naively start my own practice and I was, I was hiring that desk that I mentioned earlier on and I'd picked up a house edition and then Dick who was, I was with the university with would come and help me on weekends and we just got to like to do that so we decided to start our practice and we found an old building in Northridge and it was really run down and so we went to the landlord and said we'd like to open an architectural office in your building and he said you must be joking because <laughs> <laughs> the image of the architect then was a professional man in West Perth, a white shirt and tie and, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, we were not that. And um, in this old building, all the ceiling had fallen down. And so we raised some money and got it patched up and turned into our studio for many years. And we were in partnership for 30 years, I think, well, 32 years or something like that. A long time. And we were the probably the longest single-running partnership in West Australia. Everyone else of our era all broke up and mm. reformed and all that. I think. The With Architecture started in 2016. Dick decided to retire or go into semi-retirement mm-hmm. and I think he just had an, enough of the constant, relentless pressure of business. And so I said, I'll carry on. And I thought the thing to do is to take practice away from me and call it a different name so it's not attached to me. And that gives other people some breathing space and the younger people so they're not all working for me kind of attitude. Mm-hmm. We've made that they are. But <laughs> the opportunity to see a place in the studio or the practice another generation so then I talked to my accountant and a few other people and around a succession plan and have set that up and so I can gradually or maybe quickly drop dead or mm-hmm. gradually die I don't know oh, we'll <laughs> and pass any... it on and keep the practice rolling no. and, and and in a way enable other people to do what they would like to with the practice so that's how it came about and we uh, it was a collective decision on the name and it's about collaboration mm. and doing things with people because our symbol was very architectural before it was two names donaldson and one plus so plus is like with so we thought oh that's kind of a, a night nice connection so this and this or this with this and um, it's been great we moved to a new studio a great space we there was a recession on so we were able to pick up a you, you've been there the big, yes big yeah, it's great and, space yeah, yes and um, kind of low budget but it's like that laboratory type space mm. as opposed to a flash office it's not a real estate agent's office or a lawyer's mm-hmm. office by any means but we enjoy that and it's really good working environment we've got a fantastic team about 20 people and it's probably the best team of my career everyone's getting on really well and we had to kind of start again we weren't well known mm. I mean I was personally of course but I was trying to bury that yep uh, and then I picked up the job as a state government architect so that in a way forced me to delegate and that was really good and I'm, I'm really interested about that because I think I wondered whether you could just elaborate what that role really entails I'm sure we all have these ideas about what it and there's been such tremendous development yeah. in Perth and obviously a lot of the projects that you were involved in. But maybe you could just describe a little bit about what it entails. Yeah, it was a real surprise because I'd been invited to be on a number of 
panels was starting to become popular. So the Elizabeth Key, they had a couple of earlier iterations that weren't the one that you see now, and a few others. And one day, Melinda, who still works at the Government Architects Office, took me aside and said, would you be interested in the role? I said, no, I'm not. Your bureaucracy is not my comfort zone. And then Government Architects, Steve Woodens, we think you'd be good at it. And I was really reluctant. And I put it out of my mind. I thought that wouldn't work for me. And then one day, I got a phone call from someone who said, you don't know me, but I work for a, wasn't it a recruiting agency? And my job is to headhunt people that have been identified. So we don't advertise, we go directly to people mm. and I said nah it doesn't interest me and she said can we just make a deal and I'll get you to an interview and that's as far as this was for the same government yeah. right and so I said yeah okay and I went along to the interview and went quiet for a while and then they called me back and said your interview is really good that's what we want we've had some fantastic applicants from around Australia but you're the person we would like and would you take the job on so I went and met the government architect and had a couple of meetings to say, what's all this about and what am I going to get myself into? And I was a bit worried about the practice, you know, and, um, and not getting any more work from government and those sorts of things. And uh, so we went through all that and I, I eventually decided to take the job and put a lot of effort into it. And one of the good things is the government architect's office was not too far away from my studio. So I could go to a meeting and go back and go yep. back and back. And I just did. And while it was meant to be for two days, I did a lot more than two yeah. days' work. And one of that... The trap was it was so close, but it was also very convenient. So yes. I could actually go to two hours and go back to an important meeting at the office for an hour and then go back to the OGA and or off to a meeting. I had a great team of four or five people and we got on really well and uh, the support they gave me was superb and I could totally trust them. So we'd have really good meetings and work out our strategies and then they would act and I would read all the material before it went out. And so we became incredibly effective, maybe to our detriment, (laughs) (laughs) maybe not. But it was a very busy time and that lasted over six years. Yes. And to your question, what was involved? Well, everything. (laughs) Uh, One of the things I think our team achieved which I was quite proud of, and I only know this from them telling me, who'd worked with a couple of government architects previous, was that we managed to spread our influence or our touch to quite a number of other government departments, and that was something I was quite proud of, that we actually got design appreciated or talked about or included. I got invited to be on many presentations on infrastructure or greening the city or you know, better use of water and yes. sustainability and engineering and etc. And we yes. managed to be on a lot of forums, which is very demanding for me, but my team would prepare for me and we'd know what images we wanted to show and what points we'd want to make in a, in a PowerPoint. And so we'd work on this and I'd look at it at night and then go to the presentation in the day and things like that. So that was one thing where I was very proud of. The other thing was Perth was going through a period where apartment buildings started to appear. Perth was never particularly enamoured to or Perth people living in apartments and they had they weren't very good in the 60s and they left a bit of a bad reputation but the pressure of economics and yes. things like that were so there was a lot of controversy and around apartments in the media all the time the other thing that we recognised in the OJ was the almost invisible creep of infilling suburban houses with small two and three group yes well they sub i mean i think what i've seen in my time is just the blocks being divided and that's just such a western australian phenomenon and it was it's just not very good and i know people (laughs) who'd lived in those spaces and it's sort of like anyone who owned a house which was 
a lot of people in West Australia at the time, or percentage of the population, all become kind of well, or could become amateur developers. Yes, and so the and project they were doing home it. market just went. Wow, there's a whole world here. Yeah, and it was wrecking suburbs. You know, the suburbs that were beautiful, kind of post-war '60s suburbs were just mm. hacked to pieces. And what the community started complaining about, all the trees were going. Cause, yes. Because. Yeah, well, we if you'd sold the front block. yard yeah, exactly. <laughs> to put a house in it. Yeah, and we yeah. all had backyards and always grew up in backyards and I had trees yeah. and cricket and all that kind of stuff. But that was all gone. And then the conversation around sustainability and heat island effects started to creep in and landscape architects became very prominent in the 90s and thousands to, mm. to, and they certainly raised a lot of conversation about the lack of vegetation and our native trees were getting strangled and you know having paving around them the bases and all that kind of stuff was not good about their health and that upsets the bird life and so the conversation got more, more sophisticated yes so we started to dig, look back on some aerial photographs and see that effect so i asked the commissioner of planning in, in perth it's a slightly different approach but and come and look at these and he was he had agreed his planning background so i worked very hard with my team to move government architects office from the department of finance into the department of planning so that we could get closer to the planners and have more of this conversation mm. and that took a lot of effort and a lot of knockbacks and a lot of lobbying of ministers and director generals and premiers and we eventually shifted and as a result of that the premier asked me if i could look at this apartment problem yes that was constantly cropping up in the media and we'd been doing some work on better designs of those conditions you know mm. we've got to get more green space and deep soil and all that kind of thing out rooms with good ventilation and we flipped that to an apartment model and came up with the apartment design guide and that was released under the barnett government and it was a fantastic collaboration like fully engaged collaboration with our team and with select people from the planning department under the support of the minister of planning and we had a lot of correspondence with Sydney and Melbourne. The government architects were really helpful Isn't and the planning great? departments and it was so good. And we gathered all this information and we said Sydney's doing it, Melbourne's trying it and they've made these mistakes, we shouldn't do it. Then the government changed and we thought it was going to get killed but the McGowan government, after a bit of conversation, were willingly picked this up and so it actually got formally released and we ended up with a new planning scheme and the first word in the planning scheme is design. Ah, oh, that's... <laughs> design. And the built environment. So probably didn't even exist in the formal underwood. <laughs> so that became a kind of shift and we set up state design review panel mm. and we encouraged lots of local authorities to set up their own design review panels and pre-promoted the idea of city architects, as City of Perth has one, but a few others jurisdictions have or are thinking of that. We did a lot of internal training and now that method is well and truly ingrained in the West Australian planning system. And so that those were really, I think, important. No, I think things. it's it's very true and I think you've really identified that real change between Perth and other states. I mean, I know we couldn't believe how close people would build up to boundaries. Yeah. And, you know, in Sydney you just couldn't do that. No. And it was always be go to some other family's house and, yeah. you know... <laughs> We would use a lot of imagery from Sydney and, and say, well, you know, that's what a city with a lot more people and they don't do that. Yeah. We, we surely can do better. <laughs> so, But having contacts here and, and having a, a good relationship with the government architect office and at that time we would meet twice a year. Oh. And so we'd have two meetings in different city would host it. 
and generally around the time of the conference. So we'd meet two or three days before the conference yes, and then explain what we've been doing for the six months of the year and there would just be full-on continuous presentations of what each state was doing and what was – and then we would ask for help. Oh, if you've not, can you, so informative. This. It was yeah. so good. I mean the COVID thing has split that to pieces mm. but I assume it will come back again. But that was really collegiate. And so I used to say to my minister, whilst we were only six people, we're probably – 50 people if we add up all the states and all the different That's right. help we can get from our ally friends or colleagues and that was quite an effective message because we would see a lot of people would take on a project and go, oh, it's such a small office, how are you going to do this? Oh, no, we've got our resources. Our, we have our, our other intelligences. <laughs> so, Jeff, just thinking about now BRIC, obviously it's, you know, we do call West Australia yeah. a heartland of, <laughs> of BRIC. What do you enjoy about designing with BRIC? West Australia, brick is a very prominent material, brick and limestone, and it is a material that is the go-to material in Western Australia. So everyone who visits from overseas or certainly on the East Coast can't still can't believe we still build in double cavity brickwork, you know, da-da-da-da, and it's just, it's just the go-to material. We're not complaining. Yeah, no, I'm, sure <laughs> I'm sure you're not, but it's uh, one of the things that I think was a bit disappointing, we went through a period in the 90s where all the brick got rendered. Mm. And I think that was around, or I think it was around the Project Home Market being very, very prominent in Western Australia to a degree I think is not duplicated or not replicated elsewhere. Oh, I think you'd be surprised. But ironically, I mean, everyone was getting everything rendered to try to be different and yet everything yeah. ended up turning yeah. out exactly well, the same. What some of the leading contractors told me at the time, it was much faster and cheaper to build non-face brickwork. Yes, so you could throw it together and render over it and then throw paint all over it. But it ended up with incredibly bland suburbs where yes. everything was beige. It took us 40 years to move from beige to grey. Yes, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> but that started to change in recent times and brick is very much in fashion now. And I think one of the things that is recognisable when I visit here in Melbourne, particularly in Sydney, is the quality of the brick laying has a long tradition. So mm. some beautiful crafted brickwork and the bricks themselves really lend them so they're nice and sharp and they've got stunning colours and, and so the, the capacity to make complex arches and those sorts of details in, in brickwork is really prominent and you can see it in the old buildings and you can see a rebirth in the new buildings. West Australia never really had that craft and so the brickwork has a, a very distinct character which I think is something we have lost appreciation for and it's starting to come back a bit. And that walls of kind of simple, direct, practical, utilitarian brick laying can actually be quite attractive. And we've just, we have a, recently designed a boarding house for Guildford Grammar School, which is a beautiful They've got a lot of brick there. Beautiful heritage part of Western Australia, Perth. It's, it's, it's stunning. And we used a lot of brick, of course. And so we have some areas, there's a big cantilevered building underneath is just, Big walls of plain brickwork with the right coloured mortar and it's a basic brick and we've laid it in a very traditional straightforward manner and it's fantastic. Mm. And the bricklayers have done an excellent job at the matching so the mm. colours really, and the, the mortar is all consistent and it's really, really impressive. And then if you go around to the front where the building has to line up with a heritage street, we added a bit more detail 
that we took from other buildings in the area. So they're not as elaborate as you would see in Sydney, but they're kind of honest and traditional part of West Australian bricklaying culture and really happy with it. I think you'll be surprised when you see the entries because I know this year we've had a lot of West Australian entries that have really looked at how they corbel the bricks and and brought that craftsmanship into it. But that's good to see that craft coming back into architecture and obviously into brickwork. We design a lot of high schools for the state government and a couple of private schools, but and we almost always drift to brick and and they're schools for about fifteen hundred to two thousand students, so they're quite big on a eight or ten hectare site or bigger, and the number of buildings and they'll be built in stages. So we generally and often in greenfield sites. So uh, we always revert to brick, mm. and that's for a couple of reasons. One, schools last a long time; they have to. They're not the thing you knock over in ten years' time and rebuild them. So brick has got a fantastic long life, incredibly durable, and they're just so they're just so well suited to that type of typology. And what we try to do is, in a way, contrast the brickwork that's used in the suburb. So the school has something of a civic character. We have one of our projects launched today by the Premier and I think you'll like it. <laughs> like the, so we've been a bit more adventurous with the brickwork. Yeah, it's a it's a superb material for the, those kind of projects and because they're easily handleable by the construction industry, you can build a number of projects at once mm. and you can scatter all around and you can have three or four buildings being built concurrently and where if you're prefabricating and bringing things in it's much harder to do that and brickwork seems to suit and they are well programmed like programmable the brick layers and the brick laying so we find that our cost benchmarks and our time benchmarks for delivering high schools in west australia are both incredibly tight and brickwork and brick costing is something we can rely on when there's a boom we can rely on brick laying going up in cost (laughs) but we can kind of track that and you can rely on okay bricks now costing this much yes and it stays pretty stable once you know once it hits its kind of level and we find our qs's in a way can rely on those kind of costings so generally our tenders are really successful and um, i'm sure the brick has a lot to do with that (laughs) jeff look i've just really been fascinated today and it's been lovely to get to know you in person and thank you for sharing with us obviously the journey that you've had but also i know the impact you've had in western australia and particularly perth we are just going to now wrap up with a rapid fire questionnaire reading the news a newspaper or online Newspaper. Handwriting or typing? Both. For sketching ideas and concepts, would you use a pencil, pen or e-pen? A fountain pen, felt pen and an e-pen. Do you like to read books or listen to audio books? Read books. What's important to you, style or substance? Both. (laughs) Coffee or tea? Coffee. TV shows or movies? Movies. Antique or brand new, modern? Probably the latter. Call or text? Say that again. Call or text? Both, yeah. Travel back in time or into the future? Back to the future, I'd say. (laughs) Exterior or interior? 50-50. Video games or board games? Neither. Form or function? Both. Complex or simple with relation to design? Simply complex is the best outcome. I absolutely agree with you, Jeff. Thank you so very much for giving us your time today. Thank you. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. 
we are always looking for new ways to think brick. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.